You're listening to The Maastricht Diplomat. Welcome back to the third and last episode on the crisis in Sri Lanka, a crisis that has not only been economic and humanitarian, but also political. Lanka has a troubled political history, and a series of events in 2022 brought the country's democracy at a crossroads. You may remember viral videos of protesters invading the presidential palace and diving into the president's pool last July. That was kind of the climax of the Argalea. This Sinhalese word, meaning struggle, has been used to describe a series of protests from March to July 22 that brought a ruling dynasty to its knees and even ousted them. So, what now? My name is Jean-Thomas Geratne, and in this episode, I will tell you the story of the Aragalea and discuss the future of Lankan democracy. To better understand the topic of this episode, we need to rewind a little bit. Before we dive into the history of Lankan politics, you need to know about the country's ethnic divides. Lanka is a plurinational state with a myriad of ethnicities, languages, and religions. Around 70% of Lankans are Sinhalese, like me, speaking Sinhala and being mostly Buddhist. The largest minority is the Lankan Tamar, 12% of the population, and predominantly following a Hindu faith. You also have the Muslim Moors, the Indian Tamars, the Malays, Eurasian Burgers, the indigenous Wani and Vedas. But most of Lanka's history as an independent state has been dominated by the interactions between the two main ethnic groups, so the Sinhalese and Tamar. On a goodwill visit to Ceylon, the cruiser Norfolk joins in the Crown Colony's independence celebrations. Like its harbour, Colombo streets are dressed up to mark this great day. For the island's six and a half million population, it's a public holiday. Ceylon was the colonial name given to Lanka and a name the island kept upon breaking free from the British Empire on 4th of February 1948. After 146 years of British rule, Ceylon joins the British Commonwealth of Nations as an independent member. As power was transferred to Lankans, there was already a discussion on how to share this power between ethnicities. The answer was, and still is, a heavily centralized state with a government that has always been led by Sinhalese politicians. Some of these politicians, starting with Prime Minister Solomon Bananaika, followed an ethnic nationalist ideology and upheld Sinhalese and Buddhist supremacy. Sinhalese, we decided upon as the official language, because 70% of the people of Ceylon are Sinhalese. They made Sinhala the only official language, gave privileges to the Sinhalese people, and more importantly, did not bat an eye as the Tamar people were being attacked. The central power, and thus Sinhalese power, was consolidated as a new constitution introduced by J.R. Jayavardhana, established executive presidency, in other words, an elected president with vastly extended powers. Meanwhile, racial violence kept escalating and culminated in July 1983, also called Black July. The killing of 400 to 3,000 Tamar people by Sinhalese mobs launched a 26-year-long civil war. The war opposed the Sri Lankan government and the Liberation Tigers of Tamar Iram, or LTT, a rebel group labelled as terrorists by the Sri Lankan state and several Western powers, including the EU, 
which aimed at establishing a separate state for the Lankan Tamil people. The early 21st century saw the rise to power of Mahinda Rajpaksa. At first, he appeared as a democrat and a pluralist. My, my approach will be through dialogue and participation of the people. So I'll be discussing with all the parties and even with the LTT. As Mahinda oversaw the end of the civil war in 2009, his exercise of power became more and more tyrannical and majoritarian. A good way to secure power is indeed to appeal to the Sinhalese majority. Around the time, his defense secretary was his brother, Gotabe Rajapaksa. Gotabe has been accused of commanding the disappearing and murdering of Tamar people, as well as the assassination of one of the country's greatest journalists, a critic of the Rajapaksa family, Lasanta Vikramatunga. Who is Lasanta Vikramatunga? He is just a murderer. There are so many murders in, in everywhere. In, in the whole world, there are murders. Why are you asking about Lasanta? Who is Lasanta? He is, a, he is somebody who was writing for tabloid. In 2015, the opposition rallied behind former health minister Maitribai Sisena, defeated Mahinda in a presidential election. Maitribai and Prime Minister Rani Mikramasinghe, a veteran in Lankan politics, created a coalition called Yahapalana, Good Governance. But the coalition weakened and relations between Maitribai and Ranil were already cold as ice when in 2019 this happened. The single most important holy day of the Christian faith, Easter Sunday, signifies resurrection and redemption for billions around the world. But in Sri Lanka today, it was a day of horror, as coordinated attacks killed hundreds in three cities. The attackers struck three churches in the middle of Easter services in Batakaloa, Nagambo, and the capital, Colombo, where five other targets were also hit, including luxury hotels. In all, more than 200 people died in eight separate Initially, explosions. Initially, everybody thought that this was an purely an uh, attack by the fundamentalist group, inspired by ISIS, uh, their, their mentality, and also ISIS uh, policies, and uh, you know all, all what they have been upholding. So that was, uh, that was actually the initial belief that everybody had because uh, the bombs went off on an unexpected day in unexpected places by suicide bombers who were identified as Muslims, fundamentalists. Father Rohan Silva is the chairman of the Centre for Society and Religion. The centre, based in Colombo and belonging to a congregation of the Catholic Church, strives to promote human rights, justice and peace. I met Father Rohan Silva in Geneva as he had come to talk to a delegation from the United Nations Human Rights Commission about the Easter Sunday attacks in Sri Lanka. Four years after the bombings, there is still no justice for the victims. The Sri Lankan state had been alarmed by foreign intelligence of the threat of a terror attack, but little was done to prevent it. The so-called Islamic State soon claimed they were behind the attack, and the Sri Lankan government was surprisingly fast to jump to conclusions, saying this was in retaliation to the attack on a mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand, just a month before. But a new reading of the developments leading to that deadly Easter Sunday raised serious questions. Of course, they arrested so many Muslims uh, and then tried to pinpoint on people and then, uh, you know, they are normally in that uh, mentality. And they said, OK, this is in, in reaction to what happened in New Zealand. All sort of stories were created. You know, we still were struggling to find out where is this something that is uh, not getting really clear. It's getting complicated still more. And uh, to our surprise, the Attorney General 
who went on retirement came out before his uh, before his uh, departure from the office he said behind this soul attack there is a great conspiracy he is the one who has gone through all the documents he is the one who had the documents in his hand he had the investigation the reports and now he tells as he leaves the office uh, there is a great conspiracy behind this attack well in so november 2019 just 7 months after the attack gotabe rajapaksa was elected president after a successful campaign based on a nationalist rhetoric and the slogan one country one law there are doubts whether this whole attack was carried out in view of the the election that was going to come and uh, so we started going through it and then found yes so there can be there can be because the for the election the person who came forward was gotabe rajapaksa who in 2009 sort of completely you know wiped out the tigers the tamil ter- terrorist groups so called according to uh, the normal parlance so so he is the one who can control a, a situation where the peace is disturbed where there is signs of uh, fundamentalist groups coming up in the quarters of muslims He was even inaugurated in the ancient capital of Anuradhapura to symbolize his wish to uphold British supremacy. Mirate bahutara singhala janatava bava apa mula sitama dana sitiya. The Rajapaksas were back in power as the elder brother and former president Mahinda was appointed prime minister and brother Basil was named minister of finance. This family reunion also known as government had to face the outbreak of COVID-19. The management of the first wave was singled out as one of the most efficient in the world. But then came a general election in which they managed to win a supermajority and things started to get downhill. The country's daily case load continues to be on the rise in record numbers with yesterday reporting the highest of them all. Thousands may reach a point where they will not be able to control it this time around. The COVID-19 outbreak in this country. In most places in Colombo 1 to 15 there are no power cuts. It's really unfair. There is a huge demand. I'm not saying this for you, this is for your superiors. Tomorrow they're switching off for 7 hours. We are working for this country and that's what they give us. So tell them, from next week onwards people will take the street because next week those bastards are planning 24-hour power cuts. I am begging you, please cut off electricity the same way for everyone. Are you cutting off Emiliana? Are you cutting off Emiliana? I'm begging you, the entire country, like they come to power with those lies of one country one rule. So stop lying and cut off the same throughout the country. 
We have children here. People are going to be dying on the streets from this month onwards. This damn government won't be able to celebrate New Year's this time. People are going to be dying one by one. We have never asked for anything from anyone. We work hard. So did our parents. So did we. We have worked tirelessly and we can't even eat off of what we've earned. They're using everything to feed themselves. That fucking family can't feed themselves. They deserve to be struck by lightning. Please, if you're cutting off electricity, cut it off the same way everywhere, okay? Our kids and us are going to be dying otherwise. In any case, make sure you cut it off in Mirihana. Cut it off 24-7 for them. Mirihana is a suburb of Colombo where Gotabe has his private residence. And as this lady calling the Salon Electricity Board hotline predicted, on the 31st of March 2022, a surprise protest took place in front of Gotabe's house. There had already been a protest earlier in the month organized by the opposition parties, but this time it came from the people directly. Lankens had had enough of the government's catastrophic mismanagement of the economy, enough of the power cuts, enough of exploding gas cylinders and days-long fuel queues and food shortages. It was the beginning of a movement led not by politicians, but by angry citizens, a movement which would soon become the Aragalea. Gotabe and his government tried to suppress the movement. On 1st of April, they declared a state of emergency and implemented a curfew as well as a ban on social media. The ban backfired as the use of VPN led to protest slogans trending on Twitter worldwide. The protests kept intensifying in April as Lankans chanted Gota go home. For Gota, short for Gotabe, going home meant two things, leaving presidency and flying back to the United States where he had lived prior to his election and where prosecution was awaiting him for his war crimes. By refusing to go home, Gotabe had to concede some defeats. On the 3rd of April, the government resigned with the notable exception of Prime Minister Mahinda. On the 5th of April, the state of emergency was revoked. Meanwhile, the movement started becoming more and more organized and found a hub at the Gulf Face Green, which I mentioned in the previous episode. From the 9th of April onwards, protesters planted tents and created a small village on Gulf Face, and they were compared to the Occupy Wall Street movement in New York in 2011. The village was nicknamed Gota Go Gama, or Gota Go Town, and not to the slogan Gota Go Home. They were also calling on the rest of the Rajapaksa family to leave. One slogan that has marked all Lankans is a more sarcastic one, referring to Bessie Rajpaksa, the brother and minister of finance, and his poor English skills while giving an interview about waste management close to airports, which attracted crows, or kaputa in Singhala. If these birds, uh, the kaputas, go have uh, hit the plane, when they take over, it will be a damage. So that is the damage even for the airport. It was enough for Lankins to make fun of him thanks to this song by the late Freddie Silva, resulting in this slogan. Which, quite frankly, entertains us all for quite a few months. I still think about it fondly. Many celebrities, including the composer of this song, Vitor Ratnayaka, joined the protest as it grew to become a communion of different groups with their own agendas. For example, it provided a platform for the LGBT community. 
In a country where homosexuality is still a crime, Gotagogama organized the first large-scale Pride March. Transgender activist Chanu Nimesha was even one of the leading figures of the Aragalea. On the 13th of April, the Sinhalese and Tamar New Year, people from all ethnicities came together to celebrate, cooking their respective traditional New Year's dishes. During the holy month of Ramadan, Gotagogama provided a space for praying and breaking fast at nightfall. And amongst the claims of Aragalea protesters was the call for justice for the victims of these Sunday attacks. Father Rohan Silva became a key figure of that subset movement. We were there uh, as religious priests and nuns, uh, uh, sharing our own feelings with those who were on the roads, looking for a systemic change. So that's where we were with the people. Because these were youth who have never met, who for the first time they are coming together in trying to see that there can be there is a systemic change in it the village was a place for exchange but also conversation with speeches and debates reflecting on lankan's history as a result the statue of solomon bandanaika overlooking Goldface was blindfolded by doing so lankans of all ethnic groups were signaling a wish to break away from decades-long legacy of racist policies the term system change became the center of national conversation the Aragalea wasn't just addressing the economic despair to which the Rajabaksas had led the country. It was also targeting the political establishment that had allowed them to rise to power in the first place. However, the protesters took a major hit when Rajabaksa supporters attacked Gotagogama on the 9th of May, a day that had since been called Black Monday. The attack happened as Mahinda Rajabaksa was stepping down from premiership. People were all on roads, and those who attacked the protesters in Galway's were all attacked by people because they didn't want this to happen. The contract between the hitherto peaceful character of the Aragalea and the violence of the pro-government mobs was astonishing and pushed many to call the attack state-sponsored terrorism. During that day, a member of parliament from the Rajabaksa's party died after allegedly having shot several protesters. Following Mahinda's resignation, Ranil Vikramasinghe was appointed Prime Minister. Yes, the same Ranil who had become Prime Minister seven years before, having ousted Mahinda from presidency. The choice of Ranil, a politician who had initially expressed support to the Aragalea, was contested since he was A, in the opposition, and B, the sole representative of his party in parliament. Many suspected that he had agreed to a deal with the Rajpaksas, leading to the creation of a new village called No Deal Gama. Gotabea may have thought that by placing a pro-Aragalea figure in the government, he was saving himself some extra time as president. But the protesters' response came two months later. On the 9th of July, millions of people gathered in the streets in Colombo. A compact crowd managed to break through the gates of the presidential secretariat, which is located right behind Goldface. Images of protesters diving into the president's pool, taking a nap in the president's bed, and organizing meal shares inside the palace made headlines worldwide. It was a turning point. Gordabe was forced to leave. A couple of days later, he flew to the Maldives, then to Singapore. From there, he sent his resignation letter. So that was a victory over a big regime. The guy who came to power with 6.9 million votes, thumping majority, and he had to leave. Ranil, whose house had been burned down on the 9th of July, became acting president before parliament would convene on the 20th of July to elect a new head of state. 
Following a parliamentary three-horse race, Ranil was elected president for the remainder of the term. The joy of Gortabe's long-awaited departure became bittersweet because of the disappointment caused by Ranil's appointment. And at 2 a.m. on the 22nd of July, Ranil ordered a crackdown on all protest sites, and especially Gortabe. <laughs> We were there. I was in the golf face around 2.30 in the morning when we heard that people were attacked, those who were inside. And with us was a monk, two priests and two lawyers. And in front of us, one lawyer was beaten up, beaten up by the forces. They were wild. We don't know whether they were real people of the forces or whether they were hired, hired guys. We don't know. They were all... You, dressed up in their uniforms, you know, camouflage, image ones. But then this is what happened. And then since then, since then, uh, Ranil Vikramasinghe had been against all those who were part of this Aragale, trying to arrest them, put behind bars, and then matin charge anyone who was protesting. And he also lost his house because there had been some fire in his house. So we feel that he is taking the revenge along with the others. You could interpret this as a personal revenge for Ranil or be used to the general political game in Sri Lanka and wonder if even the fire at his residence was part of the plot. In any case, this marked the end of four intense months of protest. From then on, the priority was to secure a bailout fund from the IMF to solve the economic crisis. Democracy can wait. Well, can it though? Dr. Asanga Valikala, I'm a senior lecturer in public law at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, I'm also the director of the Edinburgh Centre for Constitutional Law. Uh, and I have always maintained an interest as I began my career in Sri Lanka uh, in constitutional reform and change in Sri Lanka. Uh, that's an ongoing interest and I do a lot of work there. So one year ago, uh, the Argale was starting, Gotagame was established and everything. Personally, in a few adjectives, how did you feel when that happened? I was here. Um, I was not in Sri Lanka. I live and work in, here in Scotland. Uh, but I do remember that afternoon, 30th of March, I think, when it all began. And in office, I was here watching um, the news uh, developing when I mean, the protest started in the in front of the president's private residence. Yes. Um, and we kept on watching it, uh, not knowing that for the next three months, this was what we were going to do, mm -hmm. uh, more or less, and try and balance and uh, fit as much work and study as you can. But the, primarily that this was going to be uh, sleepless nights, uh, three hours of sleep, uh, <laughs> trying to respond. I think every show I can hear you actually relate I, th I, think we, I think we can, yes. Yeah. I think it, we can. And it, this is also not only obviously for various reasons, it was very unique um, given the spontaneous nature of how it was organized. But also we have never been, we have never managed to mobilize people in favor of anti-corruption and good governance before. Uh, Sri Lankan political mobilization is around religion and ethnicity traditionally. Mm -hmm. People were not only protesting on the immediate causes of the fuel crisis and the worsening cost of living and all of these kinds of things. Obviously, they, these were very important causes. But also that they were imagining um, a, a better politics, a better culture of government, a higher quality of politicians, a higher level of service delivery, 
from taxpayer funded public servants called politicians yeah, yeah i mean really it, it, there was the key term of the argale uh-huh. was system change they kept saying this that's for right. months system change exactly. system that's system change and so it definitely did have an impact on on lankan politics it did manage to oust an almost unmovable family the rajpaksha like mind the basil and and godabe above all why do you think it was deemed necessary for them to actually leave for the system change to happen well there are two things to that i think the the rajpaksha family uh which had sort of essentially captured the state uh mahindra rajpaksha first came to power in 20- 2005 uh then due to the success that he had in pursuing a military strategy against the tigers and then winning that war uh he had managed to not only uh, win a war but also mobilize the country in a particular direction um to mobilize the the uh, uh, extreme form of nationalist nationalism um on the part of the majority community um but what also had started happening once that was working very well for them electorally of course but also um he had been kicked out once before in 2015 because even his heartland um came to the conclusion that the rajpaksas were on a dynastic project uh that that really that their interest in power was not so much the people uh, who were voting them in but uh, self enrichment and for for not only so it's a spectacular waste and corruption particularly so the the total removal of not only gotabe rajapaksa as president but the whole family's influence um in the intricacies of the sri lankan state was obviously a necessary first step but what what was meant by system change was even deeper than that and i agree with that demand which is that outside beyond the 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 factor the variable that is called the rajapaksas in sri lankan politics the the problem is about our constitutional structures our mm-hmm. our governance uh, and that system really has to change Uh, because we do currently have uh, a structure of government uh, which is established by a particular constitution the 1978 constitution that really doesn't work um in favor of the goods of politics that that are, that the that a more advanced electorate uh, in sri lanka now expects of politics yeah we'll get back to that later sure. the the system change of the constitution yeah. itself um there was one man who actually saw the the downfall of two dynasties the rajapaksa also the bandaranaike and that man is ranavir kumasinghe but following his election on 20th of july rani has always said that he was supporting the argalia that there had to be system change nonetheless there was a crackdown on gotagama and protesters were swept away So would you say that there is a a common agenda for Rani and the Rajpaksas or is Rani's election still a kind of change towards progress? No, I do I I mean I have never uh, thought Rani Vikramasinghe especially when he came to power in these circumstances was going to be go, go, going to govern as a liberal who was going to negotiate and come to accommodations with the protesters etc. Once he had reached and he knows the constitution well enough at the end of the day he knows the power and potential of the executive presidency under the 1978 constitution once you are there you can't be shaken and you are so dominant his his calculation would always have been now i've gotten here i don't have to do deals with anyone <laughs> um and using the kind of experience uh, of the way that he has been acculturated in 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 our political culture he knows and and, and to some extent he was right that there was a section of the country which also thought that the argalia had gone on far enough 
Okay. That order had to be restored. This is all of that kind of stuff. So I think, he, you know, he, the, the crackdown was no surprise to me at all. Um, and that was the way he was going to, to probably govern. And his hope was that, I think, uh, over time he could show that he could bring results, um, that there could be progress with the IMF bailout, all of these kinds of things, so that he could then show that the Aragal, the holdouts in the Aragale were these extreme leftist elements who are talking, you know, not the mainstream language, that he has he had brought stability um, and some measure of, you know, starting at least the economic recovery and that way appeal to the, the, the broader mainstream. That was that has always been his calculation. And so all of these factors, I think, contributed to, to the way that uh, the Ranul Vikram Singh presidency has so far panned out. Um, but it's not working for the country. It's not working for him. Yeah. So basically what Ryan is doing is that saying that the Aragada, yeah, that was a fun time, but now back to normal. That is what he was trying to say. Yes. Because, uh, well, we heard this in the second episode when I went to Sri Lanka last year. Um, there was some kind of despair uh, on the fact that the Aragada did not bring a lot, that the system change did not happen. Uh, people were talking about the Aragada in the past tense with some regret in their, in their mm. eyes. System change is yet to happen. So you as a constitutionalist, mm. what are the key elements for that to happen? Yeah, my point is exactly that. I mean, you know, if, you know, if, you know, if this sort of safety valve in the form of Ranil Vikramasinghe had not existed in parliament in, in July last year, the president would have been forced to have agreed to the the joint opposition. But Ranil Vikramasinghe stepping in and, and, and allowing the uh, Gotabi Rajapaksa to sidestep all of that, kiboshed, mm-hmm. right, at that point, the prospect of reform. That would have been the first thing to have done. Uh, 21st Amendment, fresh elections, a new government, uh, the resignation of uh, Rajapaksa. Uh, if we had followed that path, this would have been very different where we are now. Right, there would have been a fresh government with a fresh mandate. Um, instead, because Ranil did what he did, what happened was that the Rajpaksas have been projected. There has been no accountability. Um, there will never be an accountability until such time as the, the there is a regime change. And even then, you, I mean, the past history, as we know, for anything, uh, we are not going to probably do the, any of those things. Uh, but I can talk a little bit more about the constitutional dimension in mm-hmm. just a moment. But I just want to point out that, in fact, we came very close to a, a, a conclusion to the protests that could have actually taken us on the right path on the fork. Uh, and, the, uh, and the opposition, the parliamentary opposition at that point of time did step up to the, to the, to, 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 to the mark. It was this incredibly bizarre situation of Ranil Vikram Singh just being there that made the country go take the wrong turn on the fork entirely. Um, if, if, if that factor, simple factor was not there, then the democratic opposition in parliament would have forced the president to resign, to reform the constitution, begin the process of system change that way. And also there, could have been, there would have been elections within three months. And we would have been in a very different place. Mm. Perhaps we would have been in a slightly more sort of less stable place, right? Uh, there would have been still some kind of a political flux going on. But there is good flux and bad flux. Yes. You know, a country that is transitioning can't expect to go smoothly from one thing to another, particularly after the institutions have been so degraded and a country's economy has been so badly mismanaged that Sri Lanka is where it is now. 
uh but nevertheless i think the the country uh, has the capacity to um to 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 withstand all of that uh, and we still have but uh, but ranil wickremasinghe all, all that he has done is to delay uh the administration of the necessary treatment to the body politic um for a few months if not years uh, but that time will come again mm-hmm. but there is a v- very institute as a very strong institutional dimension right the structures of decision making now in our case what we what we have is a constitutional system uh the whole lit motif the whole theme of it is over centralization right it is personalist in one person everything stems from this over centralization of political power uh, so there are no checks and balances so there's no transparency there's no course correction uh, nobody knows what the hell is happening there's total asymmetry of information every incentive of the public service and the rest of the executive is to get behind what the president wants and if the president then makes mistakes then the mis- mistakes are amplified mm-hmm. right so over centralization and over centralization happens not simply because the presidential institution the presidential executive dominates the cabinet and the civil service and all of that but also it dominates parliament mm-hmm. and under certain circumstances like the way in which gotabaya was in a pandemic situation remember when everywhere in the world even in the liberal democratic west the electorates were very comfortable with giving executives you know discretion in a way that you do never contemplate under normal circumstances so gotabaya was lucky in that sense as well when he passed the 20th amendment reaggrandized i mean you know recentralized powers and he had created this sort of you know over centralized it's a over centralized constitution to begin with but the 20th amendment made that problem worse mm-hmm. so everything became something that centers around one man So this is the problem that we have we can't run a modern economy um we can't run any other thing quite frankly uh, in this way in the 1970s now remember we go back to the origins of the 1978 constitution now second republican constitution yeah the executive presidency the executive presidential system this is this was an alien uh, system to us uh sri lankan democratic political development had started depending on where you begin to count maybe in 1833 probably 1931 maybe 1946 or 8 mhm i mean it's, it's often said that sri lanka is like the oldest democracy in asia as well it right? is it, 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 that's a fact uh oldest electoral democracy because 1931 we we had universal franchise introduced to us um jaja wadhana was a very intelligent man of course and as a senior politician who had held senior ministerial office began as the first uh, minister of finance in the independence government by the 60s he had come to the conclusion that we had too much democracy oh <laughs> um that our culture of party political competition our habit of changing governments at every election he had a point you know um about the culture particularly that you can't this is a developing country that had serious developmental challenges by the 1960s so his point was that no responsible long term economic development plan can happen in this kind of situation and he drew a link between our economic underperformance and our parliamentary system of government uh because it was a question of winning parliamentary majorities at every election so you the political culture the political leaders political parties are incentivized in his view to say anything that will be an election so i will give you free stuff 
Mm-hmm. literally bringing rice from the moon and you know uh, uh, slogans from uh, sri lankan elections of that era uh, and the french semi presidential model had just been introduced by general de gaulle in 1958 and de gaulle the great war hero stepped in and innovated with the semi presidential constitution whereby a, a grand president elected by the whole nation to represent france um as the embodiment of the nation to the external world uh, but there would be a prime minister and cabinet drawn from the national assembly to run the day to day of first of government this is the same, this is the the de gaullist model that was proposed in response to a the, the 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 dysfunction of parliamentary politics in the in the fourth republic ja in 1958 was looking at what is what is going on in a context also remember in 1958 uh, the first very serious ethnic um, uh, riots in 1958 when basically mr bandaranaike's government abdicated responsibility ja is now is, uh, is is looking at this as an opposition member of parliament and he then he sees de gaulle doing Uh, taking france by the scruff of the neck and imposing order and and you know a country that is going to hell he sees himself as and he sees the presidential system semi presidential system very much in that sense this was where this is the origins of the 1978 presidential constitution um and as i said i mean its critics were remarkably prescient when you look at the series of newspaper very erudite newspaper articles that colvin nm and people like that wrote at that time because when you over centralize political power and establish a constitutional system with this presidential thing in a political culture like sri lanka's once in power any government starts behaving in 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 ways that suits itself um and unless there is a constitutional structure that enables citizens to constantly uh, be vigilant and enables uh, checks and balances so that the executive is constantly kept on its toes it's not going to work coming right back to the beginning of the question system change means identifying what is the core problem that we have with our system our system that and the core problem is over centralization and that problem has to be dealt with at the root and that means the abolition of the presidential system altogether and its replacement um not with a parliamentary system that ha- that brings back all of the problems of the parliamentary system like un- rampant majoritarianism and all of these kinds of things but a well designed um constitutional system um that certainly abolishes and replaces the parli- um, ex- presidential with a parliamentary executive but also ensures other things like stronger rights better checks and balances better devolution um and a whole series of other uh measures that can be taken in a modern new constitution that is suitable for the way that the electorate has grown since the 1970s mm-hmm. uh that's other thing that are with the, that that we saw with aragalera i think it's the it's that the electorate has really changed do you would you think that citizens are now more volatile i'm think i i think so uh, in a good way in a good way of yeah, course yeah 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 i i think yeah the, roughly the, the the new electorate which is becoming significant in numbers and certainly significant in numbers in a presidential election as we saw in 2015 uh there is enough numbers there to actually swing the 50% plus 1 nature of a presidential election mm-hmm. and that and 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 this group that i'm talking about is roughly between the ages of about 18 to 35 
so this is a, a generation that has gone grown up entirely with social media uh grown up uh speaking at least or being able to understand two languages if not th- all three so seeing that tamil and english right um so they're much more connected to the world as a result of social media I and mean, these are not always you know one sided good things but there are lots of good things by uh, by by a, a new electorate that actually knows what's going on in the rest of the world in a way that our electorate did not once upon a time mm mm-hmm. um and you also find i think if you dig deeper uh, very interesting things about the socio economic profile of 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 this of this new demographic we probably with parents who were not particularly sort of english speaking or in post jobs or all of that kind of thing but who have worked very hard and you know ensured the mobility of their children yes. so so these guys uh very often you will find they are university educated or some other professional qualification like law or accountancy things like that maybe with at least one year abroad doing a masters at least in india or australia somewhere you know somewhere this is not a profile of voter right <laughs> who's going to be excited by blood and soil arguments about what happened 400 years ago in fact they're more likely to be turned off mm-hmm. by that kind of stuff So also less likely to vote along ethnic lines you would say? I there is that but I think less so and that that too is something that is dissolved. So party loyalty and ethnic lo- in that sense you know um so I think it's becoming much more fluid and in a very very good way. Yeah. It will take time for it to sort of fully mature and come into full fruition. I'm not saying that um a sri lankan civic electorate is there for the taking but it is there in significant ways and in in ways that it can materially affect elections as we saw in 2015 and as we will definitely see in the next round of national elections i'm going to bounce back on two key terms you said you said centralization and devolution so mm. you use the centralization more in the terms of centralizing power within one man but there's also this notion of centralizing the power in colombo yeah the um serving the interests of the singleist people but not the minorities and there's this one reform that's always been pushed back and that's rarely men- mentioned is turning sri lanka into a decentralized maybe even federal system yeah. and there is an aversion to this um so now it can i i think it's uh, becoming more and more easy to to understand why such uh, such a solution has not been preferred in the mm. 70 something years of independence mm. since 48 mm. because federalism was also mentioned back back in in, in independence mm. but maybe to make it a bit clear mm. why isn't fe- uh, federalism a solution that is put to the forefront nowadays yeah so let me start at the beginning and to clarify what i said so if you agree with the premise that i proposed which is that over centralization is the problem Mm-hmm. Over centralization plays out in as problems at two different planes. One is authoritarianism and bad governance. So that has an effect on the quality of democracy and the enjoyment of individual rights and so on, right? An authoritarian governance over centralization. The other one is the one that you are pointing to which is the issue of a state that is unable to uh include all of its citizens uh and all of the communities that make up the wider Sri Lankan society or nation. Mm. Um so attacking the 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 problem of over centralization involves uh uh the 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 abolition of presidentialism and the source of authoritarianism in that sense but it is not complete unless you deal with devolution also. Because uh decentralization is not only about the separation of powers at the center it is also territorial and spatial, right? Mm-hmm. 
the center and the peripheries are both have to be dealt with so that we rebalance political power in such a way and restructure and redistribute political power so that they work not only with checks and balances at the center but they the center is checked and balances by the provinces so for that we have to enable the provinces to have an adequate level of power to be able to uh, check the center mm-hmm. uh, and to exercise self governance for areas where you bring governance closer to the people as possible we need to strengthen our whole local government system in addition to provincial councils federalism though is a much m- a more serious one i am i for a long period i mean even now if there is a federal proposal i wouldn't necessarily oppose it but i i probably would be honest in saying that i am not as um uh, zealous uh, an advocate of it as i would have been uh, previously i don't think we need uh, that level of um federal autonomy in sri lanka um th- there are some small but very significant changes that we need to make to devolution under the 13th amendment so there is a governor appointed by the president mm-hmm. but there is a chief minister and a cabinet or a board of ministers um who are appointed on the basis of the majority in the provincial council and that this that, that is the elected political executive of the province mm-hmm. uh now this should function normally with provincial elections being regularly held uh the party that forms the majority in the provincial council the leader of that party becomes chief minister and he governs he or she governs with a board of ministers but what happens here is that our 13th amendment provides all these unnecessary powers to the governor to interfere mm-hmm. so the democratically elected uh, political executive in the province is often stymied and frustrated by the central appointee right um we have to change those things uh, but in principle the point is um i think um devolution is sufficient uh, for the purposes of accommodating pluralism in our country um i no longer think that federalism is necessary if federalism is ever on the table you won't find me opposing it um but i would no longer argue that it is essential you know you you, you don't want to set up We are, this is going to be a federal constitution and then empower the anti-federalists to have a grievance remove them from the equation if you don't have that conversation on on that basis right mm-hmm. instead focus on what actually needs to be done to ensure the rights of the tamil people right you're actually taking these guys away from a referendum campaign where they can do untold harm and in fact even stop the change happening you're going to turn so many people who you might have persuaded in in favor of reform against it because it is something that is they, that they are be, you know an attachment beyond rationality in this whole context of a devolving power and uh enabling local politicians to actually get get the, get things done the next election that's actually supposed to happen in Sri Lanka is a local election and the electoral the electoral commission wanted to make it happen on the 9th of march now it's been cancelled and following this the mpp the let's say marxist leninist legacy party has been protesting uh, mm. and asking for their right to vote and one person actually died in those mm-hmm. uh, in this context so there is uh, once again signs of democratic backsliding in, in, in sri lanka absolutely right and yeah. many people are arguing that um 
withholding uh, those uh, those elections is basically a, st- a strategy of the government of the government to keep the status quo. Yeah, the government can't outright say they're not going to have elections because they have. Um you know they have to keep the imf happy the international community happy about the fact that to, to be seen as not overtly backsliding right by canceling elections ranil vikramasinghe and the people who support him which is the slpp rajapaksa's party do not want any form of election whatsoever because they know they are going to face the music in a very bad way right so they the reality is that they want to resist the election somehow or the other uh while pretending that they are not doing it and unfortunately our legal framework with regards to local government is so poor mm-hmm. and so shot through with all sorts of ambiguities and all the rest of it that this uh, unsavory sort of tangle can actually happen we need we need to you know one of the things that we need to do is clarify those areas we need to close those loopholes we need to regulate the whole legal framework with regards to local government has to be totally reformed uh, but that won't happen now but currently though um, the explanation for what's happening is simply that uh, the president and um, his backers in parliament which is the rajapaksa group uh, obviously don't want any election because um, they are probably get, going to get annihilated um so which even though technically doesn't have any effect because it's a local government elections it, it should not affect the national level institutions or that engages national but, but politics it, but it does right it 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 would be so politically conv- compelling i feel um so i think we will carry on like this for a while longer there have, of course in addition to the protests there there have been now legal challenges which we don't know what the courts might also say in the next days and weeks about the legality of the postponement uh, of the of the elections um so the, i i have a feeling that there's not going to be any kind of satisfactory outcome to this it it is just going to be another factor it's quite ironic because my sec- my my next question was yeah. are you optimistic about the the day the months to come politically in sri lanka but i'm cautiously like- optimistic i'm ah. optimistic i'm optimistic in in for all of the reasons i mentioned i think the electorate is changing i think the electorate is maturing mm-hmm. uh very glad about all of that very glad about the reengagement of the middle class with the political process uh, young people uh all of that it's forcing uh political parties to up their game all of these are good things and i know very i know with a great deal of confidence that uh, the next national level elections is going to be as momentous as january 2015 when that's you know there's going to be a mandating of reform so so for you the post aragale electorate of sri lanka is going to be able to make a more informed decision in the, in the next election absolutely yeah but but it is up to the political class uh, the alternative political class that is waiting in the wings which is able to persuade that electorate that the way to sweeping away ranil and the rajapaksas and this absolutely discredited delegitimized parliament and and the, all those faces that are there that we all share our revulsion uh, about um if you're going to sweep that away then you need to know that you got to be very very different okay when you mentioned earlier the two paths that we should have taken uh i was thinking that yeah back then everyone saw that sri lankan democracy was at a crossroads and i was wondering if we were actually too too far in the wrong path if it was too late do you think that now we are back at a crossroads and we actually have a possibility to we are definitely right at a crossroads i mean we have the option i think and that option is not in the local government elections which may or may not be held the option is at whichever level national national level uh, presidential or parliamentary that's going to come uh, and that is possible later this year definitely next year 
and we have then a January 2015 style opportunity uh, to change the regime. I think we will do that. Mm -hmm. The question much more is, have we learned the lessons from the Hapalnaya disaster as the well? The government's government. Yeah. yeah. The Hapalnaya good, good governance government was meant to deal with similar problems. It did not because, you know, the same personnel, the same culture. Uh, this time, we, if, if we are going to do anything differently, we have to learn to do things differently. New personnel. New, new personnel, new ideas, uh, not tinkering with this and that and, uh, you know, the usual nonsense. We have to change the constitution. It has the problems have been dealt with that that route, not tinkering. Uh, and uh, people who assume power after winning elections have to take their job seriously. They are coming into power in the wake of the Argalaya, in the wake of an unprecedented demand by the people of our country for a completely different way of doing things. And it is in their self-interest to stay in power for longer, um, to, to be able to cater to that demand. If they go back to the same people doing the same old stuff, or new people doing the same old stuff, mm. um, they're not going to survive very long. Well, I'm happy that we actually ended on a note of optimism because I really was expecting that we're going to answer with some pessimism. Yep. But well, uh, then I guess that, well, with the hope that good times are ahead for Sri Lanka. Uh, well, so. Thank you very much for having us once again. This was the third and last episode of the Master Diplomat series on the crisis in Sri Lanka. Aragalia, Lankan democracy at a crossroads. Thanks to Father Rohan Silva and Dr. Asango Velikala for the fascinating conversations we've had. Audio technician credits for the interview with Asanga go to Beatrice Hagen and dubbing credits to Anastasia Yamborskaya. I would also like to once again thank Simon Vietz for launching the series with me, Dr. Tamela Natavinaigen, Sarita Rugalbandar, and my family in Sri Lanka for their insights, my parents and my brother for their support and help, and our wonderful executive producer, Shara Abdallah, for her trust and wholesomeness. I hope you enjoyed this series, I hope it allowed you to get to know my little country a bit better and that it's made you want to learn more about it. Thanks for staying with us. Take care. Ta-ta. The music for this podcast episode has been produced by Stone Ocean. This episode has been written, recorded, and edited by Jonathan Vijay Ratna.